is really coming up on time. I'm sure some other people will teleport in or uh, beam down from the starship or whatever it is they're doing. It's kind of like magic, this isn't it? That whole thing about once technology gets too difficult for you to understand how it happens, it becomes akin to magic. Well, here we are. This is like we're bouncing off of satellites and stuff all over the place. Also, we can talk to an extremely kind person about how to survive the ups and downs of life. My name is Chandra Dasa. I'm here with my colleagues from the Buddha Center Online team, Kusla Devi, who I think, at least on my screen, is top left. And then if you go like a few along, <laughs> Sadaya Sihi, if you're on my screen, which may be different from your screen, is right next to Vajragupta. You can, maybe you guys can wave and then people will see. For this, Sadaya Sihi's looking after Facebook. Unfortunately, we can't get the video to stream on Facebook, so we're going to try and encourage as many of those folks as possible to come over. And the most important person, or at least from our point of view, the most important person is just next door on my screen to Sadaya Sihi. There he is, waving his beautiful hands all the way from the southwest of England, Vajragupta. Hey, Vajragupta, how are you this morning, this afternoon? It's morning where I am, it's afternoon where you are. Oh, there we hey. go. There you I'm go. I've unmuted myself. You can Hello, leave yourself everybody. unmuted. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. Good to be here. Just to mention that I've only got an iPad, so I'm doing this on an iPad, which means I only see nine faces. A bit of a shame, but I have looked down a list of participants, so I do have a sense of who's there. And it's lovely to see everyone. I feel a bit like I was saying to Chandra Dasa earlier, it's just like doing something at a Buddhist centre. You sit in a building on a Sunday morning. You've no idea who's going to turn up. And probably on some level of your being, you think no one's going to turn up. And then they do. And it's delightful that they do. So, yeah, great to be here. And especially lovely to see some people that I know. Hello. I think what I'll do is take a screenshot for you, Vajragupta, and send it to you in the chat. I don't know if anybody saw the lovely thing during the week where somebody took Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper and turned it into a Zoom meeting with like a gallery view. It's a bit like that, but better. So I'll send that on to you. So yes, we've got an hour with Vajragupta to talk about the worldly wins. I was particularly taken during the week doing the sort of preparation for the home retreat that this is part of and for the new website and the podcast and stuff. I was really taken with the subtitle of the book, which we didn't talk about in Vajragupta when we spoke in the podcast. I really liked how straightforward it was. A Buddhist way through the ups and downs of life just does what it says on the tin. And the juxtaposition of that and the very beautiful poetic image of sailing the worldly winds. And in the current crisis that we're all living through in our various ways, you can see both of it. I can relate to poetically and I can relate to just that practical thing of what do you do with these very big ups and downs? So I don't know if you'd mind maybe just giving a little introduction for people who are not familiar with your book and with the material just from those those perspectives. Sure. Yeah, so I had a quick look at the material that you posted online, which was me from 10 years ago with less grey hair than I have these days. So it was funny to see that again. Yeah, The Worldly Winds, it's this great teaching from the Buddha about, yeah, just how we can't control life. Things happen, stuff happens, and particularly he talks about it in terms of four pairs of opposites, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and infamy, pleasure and pain. So in the Buddhist tradition, they're known as the Lokadamas, the Lokadamas, which literally means something like the conditions of the world. So it's just getting at how the conditions of the world are always changing. And it tends to get translated in the West as the worldly winds, a poetic translation. The idea of the worldly winds really encapsulates it very well. It's like you can't control the weather. One day there's a pleasant breeze going in one direction. The other day there's a kind of force nine gale blowing the other way. And yeah, the question is, how do we respond to that? 
obviously we try and influence things as best we can to respond to things as best we can but we can't control things so this teaching is getting us to look at the kind of uncontrollable changeable conditioned nature of life and how can we respond to that in an ethical creative human kind of way that's great Rajagupta so who would like to ask the first question yeah my question was sometimes I feel I'm being blown about by something but of these eight conditions I can't quite always pin it down to one of them. I just kind of feel like I'm in an in-between place and it feels a bit chaotic. So I guess, yeah, just a way of understanding how to, you know, to remedy it. I feel like I need to pin it down in order to remedy it or do I not need to pin it down? I guess my question's around that. Hmm. I think I know what you mean. I think think it can be helpful to pin it down, to name it. And in a way, that's one of the powerful things about this teaching, I think, is that it, it helps people to name what's going on. And sometimes that can be incredibly helpful. You just say, oh, this is the worldly winds of praise and blame. And somehow knowing that, you see that it's just part of life. It's just the changing conditions of life. And it helps you sort of to take it less personal. So, yeah, I think it can be helpful to nail it down if we can. Sometimes what I do when I'm teaching the worldly winds is I, I explain the traditional teachings and then I invite people to come up with their own worldly wins if they want to. Maybe for them, they want to express it in slightly different words or something like that. So I remember once a friend of mine, he came up with success and failure. He felt like all his life he'd been blown around by needing to be a success and being frightened of being a failure. And for him, those words sort of encapsulated something about, you know, the the kind of the way he was blown around by life. I mean, in a way, you could say that's gain and loss. It's another word for gain and loss, but that doesn't matter. In a way, those words encapsulated something for him. So I don't know whether that helps, whether you could try and think of some other words which maybe express what your experience is. We've got a good question here from Helena Bonnet, Vajragupta. Which of the worldly winds do you think is most pertinent to think about in these times? I'm guessing we mean the coronavirus times. Yeah. Well, I guess it's gain and loss, isn't it? We're in a time where, you know, all our lives have been turned upside down. Some people more than others, of course, some people are really on the front line dealing with things, dealing with very, very difficult situations. So I've got a friend who is a manager in the ambulance service in London, just working absolutely flat out, long, long days, not having days off, trying to kind of keep everything going, really, you know, really, really kind of giving himself... Others of us, we're in the situation where we're at home and there's less to do. And all the things that we usually do and put our energy into have sort of been taken away from us. So we've got a different kind of challenge of having less to do. So, yeah, I guess that you could see all of that in terms of the worldly winds of gain and loss. That's what's going on in different ways for different people at the moment. And in the book, I talk about trying to respond to the worldly winds of gain and loss with generosity. I think this is a time which is asking us to respond as generously as we can. And we're seeing lots of people do that, aren't we? Like in the UK, there was hundreds of thousands of people who volunteered to help the NHS. There's all the NHS workers themselves. There's even people giving stuff free online, like Windhorse Publications, just offering books for free online. You know, it's going to be economically a very, very challenging time for Windhorse. And I know it's not just them. There's many people just providing materials for free online. So I'd say gain and loss and just trying in our own way to respond with generosity, whatever that means in our particular circumstances. 
That's very good, Vajragupta. Speaking of generosity, one of the things I'd really urge you to do is listen to the podcast episode we did on Friday about the situation in India, a couple of Churana-related charities, the Karna Trust and the India Dhamma Trust. And it really helps put it in perspective. We were talking about it in the team here about trying to build into our awareness of the worldly winds that there is also a kind of scale of suffering sometimes. And suffering touches everybody in the West, of course, as well. And in India, the situation at the moment is absolutely dire. And there's a huge need for people like us in a way who are relatively okay, even though it's difficult to step forward and just hear what's happening and and respond as generously as we can to alleviate some very immediate suffering. So I'd really urge people to take the time to listen to Padmadaka from the Karna Trust talking about that specifically. Maybe slightly related, you know, the things that might stop us being generous. There's a question from Sarah Whiteley. Where does fear come in relation to the worldly winds? Where does it come in? Does it fit into one of the pairs? Interesting question. There's a, a Buddhist sutta called the Atadanda Sutta, and I've been talking about this sutta quite a lot recently. And the first line of the sutta says, fear is born of arming oneself. Fear is born of arming oneself. So it's a very strong statement from the Buddha. And in a way, what he's doing is what he often does is he's turning our usual understanding of things upside down. He's saying something that at first seems quite counterintuitive. So normally we think, I feel frightened, so I arm myself, I take up arms, I get a weapon. He's putting it the other way around and saying, actually, we take up arms, we arm ourselves, we grasp the weapon, and then we feel fear. So in other words, I think he's kind of getting at how it's a cyclic relationship. We're frightened of not getting what we need or what we want. We kind of shrink into ourselves and we feel kind of tight and fearful and separate. And then we start acting out of that state. We start kind of looking at the world and perceiving the world and acting out of that kind of tight, brittle state. And then the way we act has certain consequences. In some cases, it kind of creates the very thing that we were frightened of. So I think there's been a very good example of that recently with the panic buying of food that we've had in the UK. I don't know whether we've had that in other countries, but in the UK, I think it's died down now, but there was an initial panic buying. And it really illustrated the Buddhist point that people were worried about a situation. They kind of contracted and sort of separated off from others. And then they acted out of that sense of separation and fear and anxiety. And then loads of other people saw that happening, so they joined in. And the supermarkets emptied of food at least for a while, yeah? You know, you could go in a supermarket, particularly in London, and it'd be half empty, and particularly loo roll, you couldn't get for a while. So it was like through fear, we created the very thing that we were frightened of. There was a fear of food shortages. People acted out of that fear and created food shortages, even though objectively there was no food shortage. It was created, it was mind-made. Something went on in the mind and the heart. We then acted out of that And yes, sometimes we create the very thing we fear. We do that with relationships as well, don't we? We have a slightly awkward communication with somebody. We sort of stand off from them a little bit and, you know, separate off from them a little bit. And then we don't kind of see them clearly. And then we maybe misinterpret what they're doing and the misunderstanding gets worse. And then they don't see us clearly. And eventually you can create an enemy like that. Yeah, Your fear can actually create the very thing that you were frightened of. Have I answered the question? Have I related it enough to the worldly winds? Worldly winds are those situations that we've 
frightened of. We're frightened of not getting what we want or of losing what we do want. Yeah? So even when we're getting gain and praise, there's still that kind of anxiety of losing that if we're over-invested in it. And then that fear can lead us to act in ways which are unhelpful and perpetuate the situation. Sarah's just saying in the chat, yes, thanks, well answered, which I agree with. A few of the questions are sort of pulling together what seems like quite a basic question, but, you know, obviously a very pertinent one, which is, well, what can I do? Like when I'm overwhelmed by fear, when it seems like a hurricane is blowing rather than just a, a little wind or a little breeze or whatever, what is it I can do? And just that practical level of when I'm in fear, what do I do? Maybe you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah. Well, one thing I've been working with myself, particularly in meditation, is a sense of spaciousness. So this is just one particular suggestion, quite practical. So there's something about fear and anxiety which is quite contracted. Yeah, one goes small and, and tight and contracted. So I've been finding it very helpful to, in my meditation, you know, start with body awareness in the usual kind of way, sort of feel the earthiness of my body, feel my connection with the ground, try and feel rooted to the ground. So a kind of sense of earthiness, but then also a sense of spaciousness. I sort of feel the breath in my belly, and often I feel anxiety in my belly. So as I breathe out, I'm aware of the space that I'm breathing out into, that my belly is moving out into. And then I become aware of the space in front of my heart. I mean, very, very simple, just sort of a sense of the physical space. It's very, very simple, very, very basic. And then a sense of the space around my body, around my head. And then maybe even extending that up to imagining the sky above me, the blue sky above me. So yeah, a sense of earthiness and spaciousness. I find that really helpful. It just takes one's awareness from being tight and constricted to being a little more kind of open and expansive and spacious. And then I think maybe introducing an element of reflection. So just two possibilities here. One would be to reflect on this isn't just happening to me. So feeling my fear, feeling my anxiety not denying that, not trying to sort of lose touch with that, but remembering that others feel that as well. Just bringing in that reflection that there are others feeling the same emotions as I'm feeling and yeah, having a sense of kindness towards oneself and towards others. And I think another helpful thing that can be good to reflect on is, is a sense of gratitude. What have I got to be grateful for? And again, that, that's expansive. It takes me out of this little box into a slightly bigger space where the fear and anxiety is still there but it's contained in a bigger space so that's just a few suggestions for meditation reflection but also just things to bring to mind as we're going about our day as well Nikki Stearman and, and Don River, you both wrote very moving comments in the chat box about the situations you find yourself in. I hope what Vandragupta just said addressed some of that, this idea of being out of control and being caught between quite difficult choices around isolation and having friends who are in similar positions. Just to maybe expand it out a little bit, Vadragupta, there's a question here that takes us into a slightly different area, which is from Lucy Wilkinson. Do all the worldly winds really go back at their route to pleasure and pain? I always thought I was blown about a lot by fame and infamy, but looking deeper over the last few days, I think pleasure and pain are at the basis of this. I think you could say that. But yeah, in a way, fundamentally, we find this gain of things that we find pleasurable or it's fame. We enjoy attention. We enjoy being noticed. We enjoy being liked. It's pleasurable. And the opposites are painful. So in some ways, I think you could talk about pleasure and pain as being the kind of root, the kind of basic fundamental worldly wins. Yeah. Although, just to put in a different idea, I think there is something 
quite fundamental about them all. So I think the worldly winds of fame and infamy, they very strongly relate to our human condition as social creatures. We're beings that have evolved in a kind of social context. And we've just got a very strong human need to be loved. I mean, actually, I think that's a very healthy, very necessary need. Well, I'll tell you, so when I was writing that book 10 years ago, I did a bit of research. And one of the books I read was a book about fame, the culture of fame as it's been expressed through history. And there was one sentence in the book that really jumped out at me. The guy said, he said, human beings, we want to stand out and we want to fit in. Yeah, we want both. We want to stand out and be noticed and be special and be noticed for who we are and be free to be whoever we are. But we don't want to be too different. We also want to fit in and belong. And that sentence really jumped out at me. It just sort of said so much about the human condition. We want both those things. We want to stand out, but we also want to fit in. And his argument was that the myth of celebrity is that we think celebrities can do both. They can be outrageously themselves and everyone loves them. That's why we find celebrity so fascinating and alluring, because we think they've kind of got both, you know, they're having their cake and eating it as well. Of course, in real life, it's not like that at all. If you look at the lives of celebrities, it's much more complex than that. But that was his explanation for the myth or the allure of celebrity. There's something very human about that, that need to stand out and to fit in. You know, I think some people use their fame and they use it well. In the book, I actually give the example of the Dalai Lama, who's, you know, world famous. He can have his face on the cover of Time magazine and all the rest of it. But I would say he's someone who's used that fame very, very skillfully to promote really good values. I think it's, it's dangerous. You know, I think certain people fall foul of the allure of fame and all the rest of it. But I think it can also be used, yeah, to the good skillfully. How's it going for you so far, Vajragupt, with your, your level of fame? Is that like... Oh, well, I can only see nine faces, so that's probably stopped it going to my head. Shall I read you a poem? I've got Seattle Buddhist Centre to thank for this poem. They posted it up on their Instagram account, and I happened to see it. And it speaks very obviously to the time. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd read it to you. So here goes. It's by John O'Donoghue. John O'Donoghue. This is the time to be slow, lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise, where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. Could you read that a second time, Vajragupta, just so people can take that in a bit? Yeah, sure. This is the time to be slow, lie low to the wall, until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good, and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise, where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. 
Beautiful. What was it struck you particularly about that poem, Pajagupta, when you came across it? I suppose, firstly, just the obvious thing of how relevant it is. Most of us are having to go slow and lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. And, yeah, that image of the wire brush of doubt scraping from one's heart or sense of oneself. Maybe that's what we're having to work with. We've had the carpet pulled from beneath our feet. We're in very unfamiliar situations, maybe very, very trying situations. And there can be a sense of doubt or despondency or despair. And the poet is saying, just try to be generous and then we'll come good. Yeah, You'll find fresh pastures of promise. I suppose that has the double meaning. It could mean the storm will pass because the storm will eventually pass. And then there'll be fresh pastures of promise. But it could also be that if we manage to find a generous response in our heart, things immediately start to look different. Yeah, the storm is still there, but somehow we can relate to it differently. And there's a sense of possibility or potential, or it seems a bit different, even though it may still be very, very challenging. One thing that occurred to me, Vajagupta, partly from our conversation in the week, and also this morning I had to go out to the supermarket for the first time since this all started, and it was very early in the morning, and the same thing here, the pre-packaged soup shelves were completely empty. <laughs> and we were walking back, and the streets of Portsmouth over that side of town are pretty industrial and grimy, etc. But there was this air of real beauty around, because the whole world was so quiet, and all you could hear was birds. This cacophony of early morning birds, and the first blossom was coming out. So there's something very beautiful about it. And I did wonder if, if you'd like to say something about the conditions you put yourself in, in order to respond to the worldly winds as kind of constant presences in your life. When the world slows down and becomes quiet and still, there is a kind of palpable difference that you can feel just as an animal almost walking through it. It's different. Yeah. Well, I guess that is really important, isn't it, in this time? And maybe if some of us are at home and having to go slow, as it were, and lie low to the wall, we should make time to look for beauty. So I've been trying to do that here. So I'm with my mum, who's 88, looking after her, trying to make sure she can stay safe. But it's quite intense being inside a small little flat with an elderly person whose memory is gone and who talks a lot. <laughs> you know, it is quite intense. So, yeah, I've been going outside. I'm very lucky. There's a little patch of garden outside. It's, it's a block of flats, but there's a little patch of garden, tiny little space, but no one else uses it. Amazingly. So I've been sitting out there just looking at the daisies and there's two blackbirds that come and feed, hop across the lawn. And a few days ago, I saw a sparrowhawk. It just kind of glided along. So there was, yeah, there was a lovely little surprise. Those moments are important, aren't they, to make space for that? Yeah. And maybe it takes time for that beauty to emerge. I sometimes use the analogy of looking into a rock pool on the seashore. You're sort of standing there and everything's been frightened away. It's all gone into hiding in the seaweed and under the pebbles. And you just have to stand very, very still and wait. And if you move, they'll all go back again. You just have to wait. And eventually, you know, a little crab kind of wanders out. A fish swims out and a sea anemone starts unfurling its tentacles. And, yeah, all this kind of beauty and magic emerges. So, yeah, it's important to make time for that, make space for that, especially, you know, what's going on for many, many people. That there is pain, there's challenge, there's difficulty, but there can still be beauty. The truth of one doesn't kind of deny the truth of the other. Yeah. 
It's very beautiful listening to that, Vajgupta. It's kind of like very still, slow David Attenborough <laughs> description of like nature. It made me think of your other book about being alone in nature obviously related in its content. Was there a different experience you had of the worldly winds when you spent more time on solitary retreat and were thinking about practice from this other angle of just being out in touch with the greater mandala of nature and what that's like? Mm, that's an interesting question. Well, I think on solitary retreats, in a certain kind of way, everything's intensified because you're on your own. So you sort of experience it more pure, more neat, more undiluted. So on solitary, sometimes the smallest things can take on a kind of big significance. So in that book, I tell this slightly embarrassing story of some crows and the noise they made and how eventually it really, really annoyed me. So little things can take on a big significance because you're on your own. But I suppose because you're on your own, you notice yourself being blown around more. You notice the ups and downs of your moods. You notice what's going on. But you also see it's you. You're doing it. It's your mind. It's the play of your mind here. So you're sort of thrown back on yourself in a way which if you can work with that, it's very, very helpful. You just see, this is me. This is what I'm doing with my mind. Yeah. And maybe there's something about the current situation which is doing the same thing for us. We're thrown back on our resources, which is challenging and difficult. Perhaps we can try and make an opportunity out of that. I was talking in my chapter the other day and I said, it's like we've a lot of us, we've got a new edge to our practice. One of the people in the chapter was my friend who works for the ambulance service. So he's just having to give miles and miles more, just such heavy demands on him. That's his new edge. But then there was another friend who also works in the NHS, but his work's come to a stop because he runs various support groups for people. And so he's sitting at home, not able to help. And he often gets a sense of himself and a sense of meaning through helping others and so his new edge is not being able to do that not having his usual kind of place where he puts his energy and gets his sense of meaning so that becomes the new edge so i think that's what's going on for a lot of us is we're all finding ourselves in unfamiliar circumstances where there's a new edge to our practice as it were and that's uncomfortable but that's what we've got to try and work at to the best of our ability there is a question from Lisa in the chat box, which maybe goes back to what you said about your mum, Vajragupta, just that experience of being quite intensively with somebody when you're in a sort of caring role to them. So she says, how do you face and deal with the worldly winds when you're also having to care for others in the virus situation? I know you talked about beauty and going outside, but I wonder if there's something more to do with the kind of intimacy of a relationship and the connection. Well, in a way, it helps because it takes you out of yourself. You've got someone else to worry about. So... In a way, I'm not too worried about myself. I'm more, you know, more worried about her and looking after her. So in a way, it's helpful, kind of lifts me out for myself. But I suppose one thing I'm working with is the worldly winds of gain and loss in terms of the certain things I want to do with my time. So I might want to read a book or I might want to concentrate on something and there's someone else there with their needs and their wants and maybe they want to talk to me. So yeah, I'm having to work with that quite a bit. And to be honest, having to work with patients. You know, sometimes my mum can talk a lot. She forgets what she's just said. So she says it many, many times. Sometimes she has this thing where I think she's a bit anxious. So she just asks question after question after question after question. And the questions repeat because she forgets the answers. And of course, that is quite wearing and quite difficult. And, you know, I'm not saying I get it right always. But what I've tried to do with it is I, I realize I either have to engage 
with her, really engage. And then after a while, I say, well, now I need to do something else and I have some space for myself. Yeah. What I need to avoid is sort of the zone in between. So there's a kind of zone in between where you're half listening, but you're not really engaged with the person. And then you sort of pick up your phone and start fiddling with your phone. And that's really painful and unsatisfactory for you. And it's painful and unsatisfactory for the other person. So what I try to do is I have times where I I engage and I really listen and ask questions and just kind of give myself to her. And then I have other times where I say, look, I need some space on my own and look after my own needs as well. That, of course, is a constant balancing act. And I don't always get it right. But that's that's the practice. That's my age in the situation that I'm in at the moment. Slightly different question from Shudadara, talking more about maybe meditation experience with this. Shudadara says, how do you slam the brakes on papancha? Some of you will know papancha, some of you may not. Papancha is just when the mind is kind of jumping from thing to thing to thing, thought to thought to thought, chasing its own tail, as it were, to keep itself occupied, which is a less and less satisfactory experience as it goes on, particularly when you notice. So he says, how do you slam the brakes on papancha? Any advice? I have enough trouble shutting up my chattering when I'm in meditation. Well, so slamming the brakes on the pantry is a phrase from the book, which because I reread it a bit of it the other day and I saw that phrase and I thought, oh, I wonder if that was the most helpful way to put it. Because, <laughs> of course, you can't always slam the brakes on the pantry. It's not always that easy. I mean, sometimes you can. Sometimes you just see your mind going down a certain track and you know where that track goes and you know it's not a very helpful place to go and you can just say, no, I'm not going there. I don't want to go there. You just see the consequences and you stop. And perhaps the more you practice and the more you know your mind, the more you know the tracks your mind can go down, the easier it is to do that and to slam the brakes on. But often it's not that simple, is it? The papancha's just got a kind of energy and a momentum of its own, and um, you've got to work with it in a different kind of way. So you can still reflect on it. You can still ask yourself, where is this going? Is this helpful? Is this truthful? Look at this story I'm telling myself here. Am I exaggerating something? Am I minimizing something? Because that's what the pancha does, isn't it? It exaggerates what we like, exaggerates what we don't like. It provides us with a sort of a distorted picture of what's going on. So we can kind of reflect on that and try and ask questions of ourselves, which perhaps help us get into a more truthful, real place. And perhaps also just trying to sort of feel the energy underneath it. What's the kind of energy or the emotion that's driving that story? There'll be something that's kind of pushing it, some desire, some urge to want something or to not want something. It's not always possible, but sometimes we can kind of locate the energy of that in the body or in our experience somewhere, in our heart, and just try and unhook the story from the energy and just feel the energy as energy. And if we manage to do that, Sometimes it can actually change surprisingly quickly. It just becomes energy. It's just kind of freed up and we've managed to unhook it. Of course, that's a practice. It's not always simple and straightforward, but yeah, that's the practice. Trying to sort of notice what we're doing with our mind, notice the story we're telling ourselves, perhaps working in a reflective way, questioning the story, asking questions about whether it's helpful or true, how we invested in that story. And then maybe also working to try and feel the energy, the urge, the drive that's pushing that story on. Mm. There's a couple of great questions coming in. And one of them, I imagine, sort of dovetails into that nicely. Maria Esperanza Sanchez asks, can you talk about what you refer to as control and influence when dealing with the worldly winds? I mean, control and influence as you refer to them in the book. 
Well, there's a lovely phrase that an order member called Manjushra used to use. Manjushra, he's died some years back, but one of the things he did, he was a writer and a poet. He ran Wolf at the Door writing retreats. But one of the things he used to do was he did a lot of training for fundraisers at Karen Our Trust over quite a number of years, I think. And apparently he had this phrase. I never heard it directly from him, actually. I just heard it secondhand, as it were. He had this phrase for fundraisers. You're going up to knock on someone's door. You're really hoping that they're going to give you some money. And there can be a tendency to kind of grasp hold of that, to kind of really want it to turn out a certain way. And of course, if you do that, you kind of tighten up internally in your heart and in your mind. And that means it's harder to have a kind of genuine human communication. And that means it may not go so well. So he had this phrase, which was no expectations, only possibilities. No expectations, only possibilities. It's a beautiful phrase, and it's not just applicable to fundraising. It's one of the skills of life, isn't it? To try not to sort of tie life down and want to control life too much, to live without too much expectation. We never know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen in the next hour, let alone tomorrow or next week or next year. Who saw this coming last December or in January or even in early February? No expectations, but always possibilities. Whatever happens, if we can step back, we can find a creative response. It may take time, it may not be easy, but there's always some possibility of responding or keeping the initiative in some kind of way. I really like that. No expectations, only possibilities. It's the control influence thing just expressed a bit more eloquently, I think. We can't control life. We can't control the world. But we can always try to have a good influence. No expectations, always possibilities. And I guess there's a kind of middle way, isn't there? So the worldly winds is a teaching about the uncontrollability of life. And there's two extreme responses to that. And then there's the middle way that we're trying to practice. So one extreme response is, I've got to be strong. I've got to kind of stay in charge. I've got to stay in control of the situation. And we become, you know, maybe quite strong in a certain kind of way, but it's a bit brittle, a bit rigid. You know, so I get a bit controlling or I get a bit bossy. I start bossing my mum around because, you know, underneath it's because I'm anxious. That's one response. And then maybe the other extreme is, is a sort of passivity and despondency and losing initiative and feeling, I just can't do anything. This is hopeless. And yeah, the Dharma is trying to find a middle way, which is completely different to those two, and which is no expectations, but always possibilities. A slightly different tack again, Vajrakupta, probably going back to meditation to some extent. Somebody is asking the question, I'll just look and see who it is. Yeah, Dharma Sukta asking, how do the hindrances, presumably the hindrances in meditation and the worldly winds relate to each other? I guess in your experience, rather than sort of in the abstract, two different models of working with things that are challenging for the mind to stay in the way that you're describing. Mm, that's an interesting question. I think I need to think about that one. So you've got the hindrances, which are doubt, craving for sense experience, ill will, restless and anxiety, and slop and torpor. <laughs> And then you've got, uh, yeah, got the worldly winds. I'd have to think about that. I mean, what occurs to me just off the top of my head is, I suppose when the worldly winds are blowing and we're not getting what we want, one tendency is to distract ourselves. One tendency is to kind of go into denial or avoidance. 
And maybe that's often what the hindrances are, particularly, I think, doubt can be that. Yeah, the worldly winds can spark off doubt. We're blown around. And part of that is we, we lose initiative. We get into despair or pity. We lose a sense of initiative so that the worldly winds can spark off the hindrance of doubt. And maybe there's a direct desire to distract ourselves, to avoid what's going on. So we, we get into restlessness, anxiety, or we get into sense craving. We're just looking for some experience to plaster over what's really going on. Or we get into ill will. We get into aversion to our experience or to the person that's perceived as causing our experience, and it takes us into ill will. So, yeah, I think there is a connection, isn't there? It just needs to be kind of drawn out a bit in that kind of way. Yeah. So in a way, maybe you could see the hindrances as we're sort of avoiding something in our experience. Going back to solitary retreats, I mean, I love solitary retreats, but of course, like everyone, I have my difficult times on solitary retreats, you know, where I get into doubt or feeling stuck or not knowing what to do with myself. And what I notice eventually is those times of difficulty on solitary retreats, they're basically, there's something that I don't want to experience. That's basically what it's about. There's something kind of bubbling up from deeper in my psyche, and I don't want to experience it. So I go kind of tense. I get a kind of tension in my shoulder. I go into doubt. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't quite believe in the practices anymore. And it's basically about wanting to avoid some aspect of my experience. So that's just a few thoughts about some possible connections between the hindrances and the worldly winds. Maybe there's time for a second book, Vajragupta, follow-up Worldly Winds book, Revenge of the Worldly Winds, the connection between the worldly winds and the hindrances. Exciting. We're coming into the last 10 minutes now, a little bit less than that. There's a hopeful question from Richard Hewitt about in what ways can the world gain from the coronavirus pandemic? Obviously, quite a lot of what you've said, that's implicit, but have you been sort of aware of any particular unexpected, unlooked-for boons, as it were, to what's happening? I know that this is in the context of people still coming to terms with it and there being quite a lot of suffering around it. But yeah, is there anything sort of hopeful that you see in the way the world has responded to this or just the fact of it going on? Yeah, I mean, there is, isn't it? I mean, you were talking earlier about beauty. And I think that is one of the kind of strange things about the current situation is that, you know, I'm aware of so much suffering and people giving so much, you know, nurses and doctors and so on, you know, really going to work frightened every day and, you know, challenged. One's aware of all that going on, aware of friends who've got friends who are ill and, and all that. And at the same time, you go outside and there's a blue sky and the sun is shining and there's beauty. We're sort of experiencing all that at once all kind of mixed together, perhaps more simultaneously mixed together than we usually experience it. And that's sort of strange, but that's how life is. You know, joy and pain are woven fine, as William Blake said. I suppose for me, you know, speaking personally, I've got this time with my mother. Usually I see her every weekend. I've been in this routine in the last year or so of traveling to see her every weekend and, you know, doing her shopping and her washing and looking after her. And now I'm with her all the time. and. It's a particular phase of her life, and it's this particular kind of phase of what's going on in the world. So it's a very tender time to be with her, and it's not always easy. It's got its own challenges and intensity, but it's also a tender time, and I'm happy to be sort of sharing this time with her. Yeah, so there are kind of gains as well as losses, you know. There always will be. <laughs> That's the kind of nature of it, isn't it? Almost like in every loss, there's a gain, and in every gain, there's a loss. That's the nature of the worldly winds, and it's strange paradoxical kind of way. I just wanted to say something else. 
I don't want to sound cynical, but human beings forget very easily. So, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people say, oh, this is going to change the world and we're really going to learn from this. And of course, I really, really hope that is the case. I really, really hope that we will realize what's really important as a result of this, that what's really important is love, connection, community. We've just seen the importance of those things in the last weeks. We've seen what really matters in a certain kind of way. But at the same time, we so easily forget. And there's a little bit of me which is a bit more sceptical and thinks, actually, we could just quite easily go back to our old lives and forget all about it and everything goes back to how it was. And of course, I really hope that won't happen. But I don't think we should just assume the world is going to change for better. We've got to remember. i tell you a little story. So a guy called Abaya Kurtu told me this story years ago. And for some reason, it's stuck in my mind. He used to be a van driver for Windhorse Trading, which was a gift company. So he would drive around the country in his van, selling the giftware to various gift shops wholesale. And of course, he got to know the customers quite well, because he would see them every two weeks or so on his rounds. And he said one time he went into this gift shop where a couple, very nice couple that he knew, ran the shop. And this time when he went in, there was just a woman there, and the husband had suddenly died, quite unexpectedly had died. And the woman was very shocked and distraught. And they got talking and he sort of talked to her. And he said he had this extraordinary communication with her, very, very strong, deep, heartfelt communication. He said it was like talking to another Buddhist. And, you know, he felt like he was really able to respond to her and be with her. And it was a very, very good communication. And then he went away. But he, you know, he thought about her. She was on his mind. And he went back in two weeks. And as he went back, he realized he was sort of looking forward to resuming that communication. So he went into the shop, and there she was. And she just completely kind of blanked him out. It just completely went back to how it was before. And that communication, that depth, had just gone. And there was a bit of him that was a bit disappointed. He'd sort of been looking forward to it. But then he realized, he realized she just didn't have the context to sustain that kind of insight, that kind of awareness. He realized he had a sangha, he had conditions, he had practices where he could be held. We can be held, hopefully, our understandings, our insights, our realizations about ourselves. We've got more chance of being able to remember them and integrate them and hold to them. But we're very, very fortunate in that kind of respect, and not everyone has that. So maybe that's the job after this. That's the job of our Buddhist centers and so on, is to try and help people not to forget help provide context in which people can really come along and talk about what happened and what they learned from that and how can they change their life so that they stay in touch with what was important and what they really learned about this time. Maybe that's how we should see the job of our Buddhist centers in the next few years. That's the challenge for us as a Buddhist movement. Lovely, Vajragupta. We're just coming to the end, I'm afraid, now of our session, so I'm going too quickly. Just in line with what Vajragupta is saying, this session is part of what we're calling a home retreat on the Buddhist Centre Online. You've probably seen it already. The point of it is really that there's so many of us, even in this call, everybody probably has a very different experience of the lockdown. Some of you will be looking after kids, trying to juggle jobs, looking after parents, etc. Some of you might have too much time and have run out of 
Breaking Bad or whatever it is you've been watching. So the idea is we've put up all this material that Vajragupta has kindly allowed us to reuse. If you go to thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit, you'll see the retreat space. And really it's there just to use as you need it. For some people, it'll just be to give a bit of structure to the week. You know, a quick read of the reflection every day or listening to the short piece of audio each day while you're making your breakfast or whatever, just to kind of allow you to remember your practice, remember that you're connected to a community of practice. And hopefully that will be of value. And if you've got lots of time and you want to do a full blown urban retreat at home with Vajragupta's wisdom for company, then the material is all there. I'd really encourage you just to check out that space and try and remember yourself to see yourself as connected. It's not just you and the four walls. That's what this whole thing is about, trying to not allow our perspective to narrow down as we get more and more unmoored from our Buddhist centres and our friends and all the rest of it. So I guess it's just time to thank Vajragupta. I thought we could do a little experiment. I haven't done this on Zoom so far. Maybe we could all unmute our microphones and just give them a round of applause and turn your volume down on your computer just in case it blows your speakers or something. <laughs> Go Vajragupta, your first ever sitting ovation that you've had, probably. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your lovely book. And just in case anybody isn't aware, Vajragupta's book is free for the next week. If you go to thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit, click on the button advertising his retreat. You can download the book for free from Windhorse Publications, available in all different formats. So you're not just getting a kind of cheapo PDF that you can't read on your phone. You get proper Kindle book. Yeah, free as an ebook. Free as an ebook, yeah. Free as an ebook. And if you want to support Windhorse, they're having an amazing sale where they're taking quite a chunk off the cost of their paper books and throwing in free shipping. But they're really giving away these books as an act of generosity. So please do support them and yeah, take advantage of Vajragupta's generosity and of their generosity. And we'll see you again for events in the next few weeks. Keep an eye on your email. Have a listen to the daily podcast if you like. And if you can, join each other for meditation in the mornings. We have two sits a day, you can see on the website. It's like this, but even bigger and super lovely. Everybody just shows up and sits quietly together. It's very beautiful. Anyway, thanks very much and we'll see you all again soon.